This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen. New episodes come out every other Friday. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Rouser College of Natural Resources Fall 2021 Horace M. Albright Lecture in Conservation. I'm David Ackerley, Dean of the Rouser College. I'm joined by my colleague, Gita Anand, Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism, and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author, Elizabeth Colbert. It's our pleasure to have the chance to speak with our special guest this afternoon. Elizabeth is a science writer and Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Sixth Extinction, and her most recent book, which we'll be discussing, is Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Before we get started, I'd like to share a bit of background on these lectures. The Horace Albright Lecture Series at Rouser College has been going strong for over 50 years. The lectures are a tribute to the achievements of Horace Albright, born in Bishop, California in 1890, a graduate of UC Berkeley in 1912, second director of the National Park Service, and a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom bestowed by Jimmy Carter. We're honored to have the opportunity to use the Horace Albright Endowed Lecture Series for the public good, fostering a dialogue on the critical issues facing our society. The Albright Lecture Series has brought to Berkeley a who's who of the world's most thought-provoking and innovative leaders in conservation and public service. The lecture you are about to hear, actually more of a discussion, aligns perfectly with the spirit and traditions of this series. We will be taking live questions in the comments section of YouTube Live, where you are currently viewing this talk, and a full recording will be live on our website shortly after we end today. Now let me introduce our distinguished guest. Elizabeth Colbert has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1999. She has written dozens of pieces for the magazine, including profiles of Senator Hillary Clinton, Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and former, former Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. Her series on global warming, The Climate of Man, appeared in The New Yorker in the spring of 2005 and won the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences Magazine Award. In September 2010, Elizabeth received the prestigious Heinz Award, which recognizes individuals who are addressing global change caused by the impact of human activities and natural processes on the environment. She also won a National Magazine Award in the Reviews and Criticism category for her work in The New Yorker, the Sierra Club's David Brower Award, and the Walter Sullivan Award for Excellence in Science Journalism from the American Geophysical Union. In March 2021, she was voted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and these are just a few of her many awards and accomplishments. Prior to joining the staff of The New Yorker, Elizabeth was a political reporter for The New York Times. She traveled from Alaska to Greenland and visited top scientists to get to the heart of the debate over global warming. Her book, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History, a book about mass extinctions that weaves intellectual and natural history with reporting in the field, began as an article in The New Yorker. The Sixth Extinction won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize in the general nonfiction category, is number one on The Guardian's list of the 100 best nonfiction books, and was also named as one of Slate's best nonfiction books of the past 25 years. Her new book is Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Elizabeth, welcome to Berkeley, and I'm only sorry that we're not here together in person for this event. Yeah, likewise. I would, I would love to be in Berkeley now. 
<laughs> I know you're maybe a little chillier where you are, I believe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Under, Under a White Sky is a wonderful book and a fascinating peek into the world of scientists, engineers, and resource managers around the world. If we look at the book overall, the theme is how our interventions in nature, often pursued with lofty goals or in the name of economic development, have led to unexpected consequences, which then require even more extreme interventions. You start with the example of electrifying the Chicago River after it was redirected to flow away from, rather than into Lake Michigan, in an ongoing effort to prevent the invasion of Asian carp into the Great Lakes. So my question is, was there one story that was the light bulb moment you know, wow, we're doing one crazy thing to fix the problems caused by the last crazy thing we did. When you saw that these examples are part of one story about how we relate with nature and that led you to pull them together into, into this book. Well, I won't say there was, you know, the aha moment exactly, but I can say that the story that really propelled me down this path um, was is the story that's actually at the very center of the book, I guess. Um, and it was a visit I paid to Oahu in back in 2016. Um, and I, I went to visit a, a project that had been dubbed the Super Coral Project. And, and the, basically the idea behind the Super Coral Project was, you know, pretty straightforward. Reefs are in terrible trouble. I'm sure all of our listeners right now know that already. Um, they're largely in, they're in trouble for all sorts of reasons, but a biggie is climate change. They really don't like it when, when water temperatures get above a certain you know, range. And we're seeing that more and more, these, these coral bleaching events where the water temperatures rise beyond their tolerance and they um, basically eject their uh, symbionts and and starve to death and we'll go into the you know sort of biology of that although i'm happy to if people want um so the there was a very charismatic scientist um at the hawaii marine biology lab there named ruth gates who had come up with this idea well we can't just you know sort of let reefs die we have to do something and that something she came up with she called assisted evolution we were going to sort of direct the evolution of corals so that they we could sort of get ahead of this problem nudge them along and you know the idea sounded crazy and it may in fact be crazy um and but she was a very charismatic person a very forceful person and tragically died pretty young um a few years after i met her and she said to me in various different ways, and I quote her in the book in various different ways saying, um, you know, the future is coming where nature is no longer fully natural. We are going to be intervening in these systems more and more. Um, and while I didn't necessarily agree with everything she said, and well, the project may not ever really get, you know, anywhere serious, those ideas were really planted, you know, what are we going to do with this world that we have remade? Are we going to continue to remaking, to re, you know, the next level of remaking it? What are we going to do next? And I started to sort of see that pattern everywhere. The solution to the problem of having messed around with these systems is to impose another order of manipulation because we can't un 
do what we've already done. You know, we, we or in, in many cases, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to simply roll back the clock. That's just not happening. So we don't have that many good options. And that's really what the book is about. Well, that's a, a perfect segue because I wanted to jump right to the last section of the book, the book. So the title, Under a White Sky, refers to the possible effects of geoengineering. So one of the crazy ideas to battle the ongoing uh, and unfolding impacts of climate change is trying to reflect sunlight back to space. And one mechanism through, of ge- in terms of geoengineering is injecting sulfur dioxide, or pa- perhaps one of your interviewees mentioned crushed diamond dust. That was a new one that I hadn't, uh, that I hadn't read about. So depending on who you ask, this is either a deeply irresponsible act to think about manipulating how much sunlight comes down to earth, or it's something that we have to take very seriously as each year passes and we, we failed our curtail emissions. Uh, and now we've seen or not seen the outcome of yet another cop that has come and gone. So after you met and interviewed the experts in this field, you write in the book that you were left at best ambivalent. But I wonder if you could reflect more on what you learned and what you've taken away and what you, where you think this, if you had a crystal ball, where this, where this may, whether this plays a, a, a part in the future. Well, you know, the, the geoengineering it turns out to be, and this is something I do, do talk about in the book, a, a kind of strangely old idea. It was like as soon as people, and when I say people, I, I really do mean scientists, realized that climate change was a problem. And that was quite a long time ago already, back in the 60s, really. Uh, the first report to Lyndon Johnson on climate change. Um, they didn't say their initial the reaction wasn't well let's stop burning fossil fuels because apparently they thought that was not going to happen and it turns out they were prescient uh they jumped immediately uh to some form of geoengineering if you look in this 1965 it's kind of a landmark report it's up online you can find a pdf of it uh because it was the first report on climate change, really first high level report on climate change. And you'll see a a panel of people who discuss it and anyone in the field knows these are really distinguished people. They went right to, well, maybe we can create some kind of reflective balls or something that we're going to dump in the ocean. And they actually did a cost calculation of, of what that would cost. And that would reflect sunlight back to earth. So have, you know, as opposed to reflecting it off the top of the stratosphere, you reflect it off the oceans, but same idea. And that is really striking, I think. I mean, we, so this idea just keeps bubbling along, as it were. It hasn't gotten very far in terms of research. Um, the first sort of really rigorous test, not of the technology, but simply of the machines that you might use to measure the effects of what you're doing, was scheduled for this past summer in uh northern Sweden, and it was canceled because there was so much opposition to it. So the science has actually not progressed very far beyond computer, you know, modeling. Um, it, it, it's so controversial, and, and maybe that's good. I don't know. But I will say, I guarantee, I can pretty much guarantee you <laughs> that the talk, the chatter, is going to continue to bubble up and get stronger and stronger. And they're going, there was just a National Academies report um, of just a few months ago recommending a $100 million research effort. Uh, and that hasn't been financed, but you're going to keep 
hearing things like that, you're going to find the UN taking it up. You're going to find higher and higher level organizations taking it up. It's a tremendous challenge, you know, not just technically, but the governance of it. We can't govern our carbon emissions. How do we govern, you know, how we're trying to try to counteract that given all the many potential side effects. So it's it's a terribly, terribly difficult issue, but I think we're going to be hearing more and more about it because as you say, we continue not to do what we know we should be doing to ameliorate, you know, mitigate climate change. Uh, so we're we're going to be forced more and more to consider some pretty, you know, this sort of Hail Mary uh, ideas. Well, actually, it's interesting. I don't, I don't, I wasn't aware that the early idea was reflective surface of the ocean, because of course that doesn't create a white sky to begin with. No. And it also doesn't create the issues. Yeah, as a plant biologist, of course, the very first thought is if we diminish sunlight, what are the impacts on agriculture? That's only one of the many, many potential effects before getting to the governance and the, and, <laughs> and the politics. Um, and you may know that there are places where black balls, black balls, not white balls, are being placed on reservoirs to reduce evaporate, evaporative loss. No, in, I did not know that. But of course, the black, if they are, I guess they wouldn't have to be black balls to reduce evaporation because that's absorbing heat. So, so we need to play Just that. some kind of surface to prevent. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to put, I'm going to pose this question back to you as a plant biologist because um, I was told by the geoengineering guys, you know, we're, we're not talking about, we're just talking about, you know, let's say 1% of all sunlight, um, which, you know, is a lot of sunlight, <laughs> but, but I was told that plants actually like indirect light, uh, and it would not have a major agricultural effect. So uh, that's, that's plausible. And I shouldn't, I, I, I shouldn't pretend to be the expert on it. <laughs> uh, no, it's a, it's a humongous question, obviously, yeah. and obviously, you know, I mean, the thing about geoengineering, the thing about reflecting sunlight, the thing, one thing is you keep pouring CO2 up there, you need to put more and more sulfur dioxide or diamonds or whatever you're doing, you need to reflect more and more sunlight to counteract those effects. So, you know, anyone who talks about geoengineering with any sense of, you know, responsibility, um, and most, you know, these are pretty serious scientists who are talking about it now, talks about it in conjunction with cutting emissions. You can't have uncontrolled, you know, emissions growth and geoengineering. That way, I think we can all agree uh, lies madness. Uh, the question of whether it buys you some time um, because of these locked-in impacts uh, that we're already, you know, seeing and going to see more and more of—that's uh, really m- more of the sort of question on the table. Well, I think that, and that mirrors so many discussions that there's no one solution, and there's probably not no one solution that even is more than half of a, you know, actually solving the problem without bringing everything to bear and each each small contribution adds up if we're going to pull this off. So I want to I want to turn to it kind of now flip this all on its head. So you know you give other examples which are again these you have the example of in, in the Mississippi River Delta creating a, a diversion to deliver sediment where the diversion alone, I think you said is would be the seventh largest river in the world, just the, the scale of that's of course a scale of an enormous ecosystem. I'm curious though, as you met scientists and engineers and the resource managers, um, did you ever come across a story where someone where someone gave you the opposite example of, a, of an intervention that was so small and so subtle and yet so effective, <laughs> you know, kind of the, the other end of the scale of, um, 
where we once we know how a system works, we just find that just the the small nudge can actually make a real difference. And it may not be a global, it's not global climate necessarily, but any other examples. Wow, that's that's a really good question. Um I mean, I was looking sort of, you know, I guess I guess you find what you seek. Um, and I was looking for examples where things sort of ramified um and they tended to ramify you know in in ways that people hadn't thought of i mean there are all sorts of of examples i guess and i'm sure you know this better than i where we you know sort of imported some um you know parasitic wasp or something like that to try to control something which um you know i think some of those have been fairly successful you know i think people might say even in those cases that seem to be fairly successful, that they have sort of off target effects that we may not be watching for. And I think that is sort of maybe one of the themes of the book too, is that, you know, just as I said, you, you sort of only find what you look for, you know, you only, you only, that's true when we monitor these unbelievably complicated systems, we only, see what we go looking for. If you're not measuring something, you're not seeing it. And I will just give an example of um, some entomologists I know who are looking to see whether some of these wasps that have been um, imported by the USDA, very often when we get an imported insect, you know, we then import some of its predators, uh, whether they're having these off-target impacts, whether they're egg parasites, parasitizing the eggs of, you know, indigenous insects and no one's even looking at that so if you don't look for it you don't know uh you know your and your use of the language off target i think highlights us there's so many analogies to how we think about medicine and disease and treatment in in particular that we can come up with spectacular drugs but they have side effects and then there are the drugs which treat side effects and in some ways that struck me as the entire analogy for your book and actually each is written in medicine so maybe we can come back to think more about those analogies between medicine and the environment and more and more we see the language of health being used healthy soils healthy forests which has in some ways a very clear connotation certainly health is a desirable property but is actually much less clear among the academic community about what you know how would you go to a forest and measure health and 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 put numbers on that and make that an operational sort of research capacity now the other the other topic i want to turn to which is um you know really rightly receiving so much more attention is you know we started with we started right from 1965 how can we stop climate change from happening immediately moved on and more and more to thinking about the problems of adaptation you know some it's climate change is happening we need to address it but now and not just now, many people have thought for many years, but really paying attention to how much the benefits of burning fossil fuels have accrued to the wealthy, either wealthy nations or wealthy sectors within nations. And so many of the costs are falling on marginalized populations and frontline communities. And, and I'm curious, again, as you, with all the people you've met and all your travels, where, where did you see the, the, that thinking coming in as people are thinking about solutions? What are the in what way are the solutions that are being thought about for climate change really paying attention to addressing impacts on those marginalized communities, but also how some of the solutions themselves bring equity issues and, and, and may perpetuate some of those problems. So where is that figured into the reporting you've done? Well, you know, I, I will say that that's a whole 
you know, book in and of itself, which, you know, some people, people have written and more books will be written. So it's a, it's a huge, huge topic. Um, I think that, you know, indirectly it comes into under white sky and, you know, for better or worse, I suppose you could say, and we, we saw this in Glasgow once again, where the equity issue, I mean, there are, there are so many equity issues, as you point out, the impacts, and also, as you say, as we move forward to you know try to solve this problem, whose back is it going to be solved uh, on? And when you know the developing countries came to Glasgow, you know India saying, well, yeah, okay, we'll be carbon neutral in 2070, um, that was a big concession for India already. Um, but their basic point is. Why should we, you know, we didn't get the benefits of this first, you know, uh, round of, you know, wrecking the planet. Uh, why should we be the ones now um, to take the costs? And no one has shown the path toward industrialization, toward economic growth without fossil fuels. If someone were to do that, if some nation were to do that, if the U.S. were to do that, maybe we'd be having a very different uh, conversation. But one of the reasons that I think that both carbon dioxide removal, which is you know a big part of the book, and um, geoengineering are going to get more and more, and you're certainly seeing this with carbon dioxide removal, getting more and more attention, um, is because there is a built-in, you know, not just because everyone is just emitting too much, which is you know clearly, clearly true, but there's also a built-in equity component. You cannot ask. Uh, developing countries not to develop the way we did. It's just not, uh, it, they're not going to buy it. And it's, it's obviously has carries with it tremendous um, it, issues of equity. So you have to leave a certain amount of, of room, as it were, a certain amount of budget, which we as a developed world have already used up, but you really need to leave that for the developing world. And when you put all those numbers together, it's really, really hard to come up with a pathway that is both equitable and meets these goals. And I have, to be honest, yet to see that. You know, well, that's um, like so many of the, so much of the discussion is the, the honest answers are usually fairly sobering uh, as much as all of us, I think, are holding on to our optimism because if we give up that, we give up, you know, the passion to, to do this work. And, and, and on that note, before I turn to Gita, I want to ask, there are many students listening today, and I'm sure, I know you've spoken another campuses when when you hear from students and they ask for your perspective on how to orient their careers and their own work um what what do you offer as from the from the your perspective and everything you've learned well the one thing i would would say to to young people who who are starting out and thinking about what to do with their lives and facing you know a really a lot of daunting and dark news is um, it's there are great opportunities to spend your life doing really meaningful work to try to deal with these problems. You know, there's the that sort of you know curse may may you live in in interesting times, and and we live in interesting times. And um, I think that there are so there's so much work to be done from you know the reengineering of all these systems from adapt adaptation uh, in energy in 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 just about any field education any field you can name there are ways to I think really make 
make a difference or, 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 or make a major contribution. So I, I guess I urge young people to think about, you know, where your talents are and where your passions are, obviously, but how could you um, participate in, in this massive amount of work that needs to be done? There's definitely full employment out there for anyone you know, who wants to be interested in the, who's interested in the clean energy future. I, I, I feel pretty confident about that. I'm sure you've heard scientists and others say to you that, that they would be very happy to be out of a job if this was all solved and these things weren't happening. But right now that does not seem to be the case. And on that note, I mean, you've demonstrated with your own career, your words, your, you know, the work you've done as a journalist and the impact it has and in part bringing to light the, the, the work of scientists and many of our colleagues, and then uh, tying it together in the stories you tell. And on that note, we are joined today uh, by Gita Anand, Dean of the Berkeley School of Journalism. Gita is also a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and a book author. She's reported and written most recently for the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and reported for 10 years from her home country of India. Gita and I have a, a real shared belief, and we're beginning to work together on this, that just as journalists must become proficient in science if they want to report on it and to craft a narrative, scientists may, can also benefit from a deeper understanding of journalism to enhance their ability to tell the story of their work and not just to engage with journalists, but, but to think more about their own uh, storytelling. And I'm going to pass the virtual Zoom mic to Gita to continue this conversation and talk about the, the craft of writing behind your work and the intersection of science and journalism in today's media environment. So Gita, I'm so glad we can be here together. Thanks so much, uh, David. Um, I'm delighted to be here and it's wonderful to be in conversation with you, Elizabeth. Um, and I'm excited to talk about um, the craft of storytelling and the craft of writing, because certainly we all know that um, we live in apocalyptic times and the big challenge for all of us and for scientists is how are we going to convey um, the challenges and the dangers that we face uh, to the general public. Um, I thought about that as a journalist in India, you know, every year 50 or 100 people would die of heat stroke. And how do you prevent that from being a brief in the newspaper every year? How do you tell that story with impact? And your work shows, um, I mean, just as a uh, most incredible example of how to do that. So I want to talk to you a little about how you do that. So let's just talk about the story structure, or, and in your case, the book structure. So your book makes an argument in, you know, a really um, subtle, deep, rich way with story after story after story. Tell us how you figured out how to structure your book and why you structured it that way. Maybe you can talk a little about how you structured, what the structure is, and then how, why it's that way. Yes, sure. And I want to say thank you for saying that. <laughs> I, I'm not sure all that came through to everyone. So I really, I'm very, I'm thrilled to hear you say that, that there is an argument building through the book. Anyway, um, so the book begins the way I see the structure, you know, and I know that sounds odd that people could see it differently from the author, but I certainly think that you could. I wanted to begin, it begins with a very concrete story, a story of something that is happening. We, we reverse the flow of the Chicago River 
you know, back in the 20, early 20th century and now um, in the 21st century, uh, a section of the river has been electrified to, you know, um, counteract the effects of it, that original intervention. And that was very um, pretty easy to understand, you know, I, I think I say in the book, first you reverse a river, then you electrify it, you can say it as simply as that. And it, as I said, it had already happened, it's not very high tech, it's sort of pretty easily comprehended. And then the book sort of takes you along this kind of path, I hope, where things become more and more um, both speculative and kind of um, alarming. <laughs> How's that? So, you know, you might say, well, that's okay. And then we go to a an example of a fake habitat that's been um, constructed for, you know, a fish, a very rare fish. And you might say, you know, so that's another intervention to counteract our previous intervention that might say, oh, that well, of course, that's okay. And then you kind of get led along until at the end, we are talking about re-engineering the stratosphere to counteract the effects of climate change. And it, it's sort of a, the structure is, is, is really a slippery slope, you know, where, is that okay? Is that okay? Is that okay? And there's no answer to these questions, you know, um, and that to be frank was the real challenge of writing the book that there's sort of an argument without being an answer. That's so interesting. But when I, the journey you took me on made me through the structure of your book, understand in a deeper way than I ever had why we're considering these um, crazy crazy um, alternatives and then made me realize that these crazy alternatives may actually be necessary um, and in that way I thought it was just incredibly effective um, so talking about writing um, you know, as scientists and um, everyone doing, you know, I've, I've written about science and medicine. Um, and the challenge is always, if you're a scientist or a doctor or writing about it, how do you write about complex things and make them sort of understandable to people? Um, so I want you to just add uh, to the, yeah, how do you draw people in uh, so that they can understand the relevance of these things to the larger context of the world and how interesting and strange they are and how to make the connections to them. So I'm going to read from your book just one way I thought you did it well and then ask you just to talk about what techniques you employ in your writing to do this. So this is in the chapter about the interventions to save the pupfish. And um you're talking about all these huge interventions, you know, a dummy pond set up to experiment uh, to, on how to save them and at times to move them there. And then you say, later I did a calculation. Altogether, the pupfish at Devil's Hole weighed in at about 100 grams. This is slightly less than the weight of a McDonald's filet fish sandwich. Um, can, what, talk about why as a writer does something like that and what our listeners can learn, uh, you know, what they can take from that to apply to their writing. 
Well, um, I'm, I'm glad you liked that moment. Um, I, I think, I mean, that is sort of a, a little bit of a, well, I mean, on the one hand, you know, that's just implying, you know, to be honest, a classic, you know, as, as you know, classic journalistic trick, um, this way, something, you know, it's a, it's, well, well, what is that in your life? You know, you know, I think one of the ways in which science and, um, you know, and we were talking about this earlier before we sort of came on, on, on the air, as it were, you know, that scientists and journalists really diverges is, 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 is numeracy, you know, and the, and the general population, you know what, I mean, the crazy thing when you think about it is, for example, you know, all scientific, you know, one, 1. 1.5 degrees C, that doesn't even mean anything in a country where we, you know, deal in Fahrenheit, you know, so everything that, the the units are wrong, you know, and the numbers that that people feel very intuitively, you know, a gigaton. I mean, who knows what a gigaton is, you know? And so, um, I think that you know, bringing it to, and that in this case to something very small, you know, that that all of these fish that that they are spending millions of dollars on and you know, untold man hours to save collectively have the weight of a, of a McDonald's filet of fish that is just as I say using this this old journalistic trick of of relating a number to to a quantity that people can relate to you know now that was kind of deflationary you know that was bringing it down um bringing it up can be more difficult as you know because once you start dealing with you know really big numbers, that famous quote, whatever, a billion here, a billion there, pretty soon you're talking about real money, you know, the numbers are just so big and so vast, the quantities, when quantities are really vast, how would I illustrate a gigaton of carbon, you know, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing that's a gigaton except a gigaton, so um, that gets really m- more difficult, it's just beyond the realm of sort of individual experience. You're so right. And I'm going to jump to a a different um, portion of the book where you did it in the opposite way, helping us understand um, just how much levels of carbon have risen. And I want you to just talk about sort of the various um, strategies a writer employs to get across the impact of change. So I'm going to read just a little bit. This is page 147, but this is how I saw you brilliantly um, explaining what's happened with carbon and sort of addressing the challenge you talked about of how do you express like gigantic numbers again and have them be relevant. And in this case, I don't think there's a a McDonald's burger or any type of mountain that could fully quantify this, but this is how you did it. And it's through a combination, it seems of history and um, storytelling. So you start this page saying, what is, when exactly people began altering the atmosphere is a matter of debate. According to one theory, the process got underway eight or 9,000 years ago before the dawn of recorded history. Then further down on this page, you say, according to a second more widely held view, the switchover 
only really started in the late 18th century after the Scottish, Scottish engineer James Watt designed a new kind of steam engine. And then further down, you say um, in 1776, the first year Watt mark marketed his invention, humans emitted 15 million tons of carbon dioxide. By 1800, that figure had risen to 30 million tons. So that's 15 million to 30 million tons. Um, and then you go further down. Now that the figure is close to 40 billion tons annually, so again, people wouldn't be able to grasp that. So then you say, so much have we altered the atmosphere that one out of every three molecules of carbon dioxide loose in the air today was put there by people. <laughs> so can you talk about what you did there and what you were trying to do in the context of the challenge all of us have of how to have impact in our writing and storytelling? Yeah, that that's a that's a really, you know, good question and I it's a it's a figure that I've, you know, spent a lot of time grappling with um once again, you know, scientists deal in parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere and it's it's a trivial part of the, you know, carbon dioxide is 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 a trace gas. I know that everyone here knows that already. It's, you know, we're at whatever I had not checked today, 417 parts per million. Um, and so if you present that to a sort of um, general audience, like, well, who, you know, who cares? What's the big deal? You know? And if you say, well, it was 280, you know, and it's up to 420, it, it just doesn't have a lot of uh, impact. I don't think so. Um, you have to try to, um, as you say, bring bring home the scale of the change to people, and even saying, well, we've increased carbon dioxide by you know almost fifty percent at this point, didn't seem that interesting to me. <laughs> so, um, so I tried to flip it around, you know, to to one out of every three molecules of carbon dioxide. Now that um, you know, does that really affect people differently? I I think maybe a little bit, and I wish I could explain why, but but I don't think I can. But it sort of gets back to, I think that most of us, and and one of the good things is about not being a scientist. I don't have much of a science education. I am not um, particularly scientific. I took physics my first semester in college and very nearly flunked out. So I um, don't, I, I am my reader, you know, and whatever. So I use myself as a guide, I think. And um, what, what makes an impact on me, I hope, and this is always an act of faith when you are sending a piece of writing out into the world, uh, will have an impact on a, on a general audience. And, and I'm sure to the scientific community, you know, sometimes it's, it's, too dumbed down or oversimplified, but, um, you know, that's sort of a, a hit I'm willing to take, I guess. I, to me, it just, um, when you said that, when I read that, it just conveyed to me the degree of change we've created. If now in the air, 
one out of three carbon dioxide molecules was put there by humans. Like, oh my God, it conveyed just like the degree to which we have changed our world. Yeah. 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 And I felt oh, that I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> it was very powerful in that way. Um, I know we're at time to begin to take audience questions, and I want to make sure that um, our audience, our listeners get a chance um, to ask questions, and I'm sure some of them will be about writing and some about climate. So over to you, David, to um, take the lead in moderating our questions. Thank you. Um, you know, um, Elizabeth, you made such an interesting comment that to scientists, it may, it may be dumbed down. I just want to offer as a scientist, I want to offer a counterpoint. First of all, reading your book makes me so jealous because here are these, here are all these scientists whose names I know. I can't call them up and say, "Can I spend three days in the field with you?" That's <laughs> yeah, the relationship I have. I might meet them at a conference. So, so on the one hand, and I've we've spoken about this before. Um, I'm always looking for how to convey these ideas you know, very clearly. And, and it's not only because we're trying to speak to general audiences, it's actually not that different than what we're trying to do in the classroom, because we don't walk into an undergraduate classroom and read from the primary literature. We're trying to speak in ways that, you know, capture people's attention and allow for Q&A. And I, and there's some real parallels, I think, between the ways we're trying to, to find that clarity. So I, I would not ever, I hope you never have to worry that you find this. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, so I, I have two questions that I'm going to weave in a third one. And, 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 and actually, it's, you, it's um, Gita, you just mentioned um, the, the invention of the steam engine in Glasgow. I'm sure some people here have heard, seen uh, Boris Johnson was said it at COP. It was 250 years ago in Glasgow that James Watt came up with the machine powered by steam produced by burning coal. And 250 years later, we brought you back to the place the doomsday machine was invented. So a little dramatic <laughs> around the COP meeting in Glasgow. But the, the two questions, um, the, the first was, are these multilateral agreements like COP26 enough to achieve what we need? Um, that, that's one version of it. A second um, that just came in is, what do you think is the most constructive outcome from the COP meeting? But let me add a third, which is, what's the alternative? Are there, you know, what, and I don't say that in a, in a rhetorical way. I mean, absent multilateral agreements, what are the other forces in the world that can drive us towards solutions that, will, that may not depend on that kind of uh, international political process? Well, these are, wow, these are good questions. Um, I mean, the first question was, was, did did COP twenty six get us? What was the first question again, David? Did, um, is, it, is it enough to achieve what we need to oh, avoid that? Uh, one's really easy. Avoid, no, avoid total <laughs> So that one was easy. Okay, no, they are. It is not enough. Um, and there are two, but but that's a facile answer. And the, but there are two parts of that. One of which is, you know, the way that these that 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 the Paris Agreement was structured and that Glasgow is building on were these voluntary national, they're called NDCs, nationally determined commitments. Uh, they were done, you know, this voluntary approach was done for a few reasons, one of which was that no binding targets were going to get through the U.S. Senate. The U.S. Senate is never going to approve anything. It has to be a two-thirds vote, so 50-50 doesn't do it uh, even. 
um, to approve a treaty. So they knew they were never going to get a treaty through the U.S. Senate. So they had to have this kind of workaround. And these are so these are voluntary commitments. And um, even if we tally up all the voluntary commitments, you've probably read this, you know, we get to like two and a half degrees, let's say, by 2100. Um, you know, assuming a certain trajectories. And, and those are big assumptions, you know, between now and 2100. But, but more to the point, we don't have an enforcement mechanism. So everyone announces these targets. I mean, Joe Biden announced this target of uh, reducing U.S. emissions beneath 2005, which I should say is a year that was chosen because it was a peak of U.S. emissions, um, by 2030. Well, that you tell me how that's going to happen. I mean, that's nine years from now. So we are nowhere near reaching that target. And now that, you know, the whatever build back better, whatever the hell it's being called now that the big reconciliation bill has really been watered down. I don't know if anyone could point to a way that the U S could actually meet its commitments, but for 2030. So you can make the commitment, but are you going to meet the commitment? So those are two, the commitments are not enough and meeting them is very dubious in a lot of cases. Um, the question of whether, you know, COP has just the whole approach has just run its course, I think is a really important one and good one. And, you know, 25,000 people or whatever flew to Glasgow for this meeting that, you know, really may well not have been worth the carbon, you know, that was burned for it. So are there other approaches? That is, I, I am not an expert here, but I think that one approach that you are seeing people explore more and more, you know, are these notions of, for example, you know, carbon taxes and carbon tariffs, you know, all, are you going to sort of have to dispense with this idea that we're getting a grand global agreement and actually just go with trade agreements and trying to clamp down on emissions in your own borders and then, you know, by sending out the signal through global trade. I mean, that, that's really what, what we need to do. And that's, this is really what Paris was about too, is that this virtuous cycle of we're going to convince everyone that we're going, you know, to, we're going to get off fossil fuels and that's going to build on itself and the money is going to follow that. And that's how we're going to do this thing, not by national commitments. They never really thought we were going to get there by national commitments. It was creating this sort of vast, uh, momentum that then all the capital in the world, which is really controlled, you know, mostly by private entities, is going to follow that. And that's really what we need to, to mobilize under our current system, which I know many people feel is incapable of dealing with climate change. And we're also going to find out whether that's true or not. So another listener posed, posed the question in a much more succinct way. And the question is, is it too late? <laughs> oh, no. Well, it's too late for some things, you know, absolutely. It's too late, you know, for, uh, you know, those coral reefs that are that are already dead. I don't think they're coming back. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of damage that's baked in. And I, I think we need to acknowledge that. Um, but, you know, it is not too late. We have to hope. I mean, once again, there's a lot, there are big uncertainties, you know, with climate impacts, um, which have... A very long time scale, you know, are we already melting the Greenland ice sheet? You know, very, very hard to say. Um, but I think it's never too late. I mean, unfortunately, all, there's been a lot of talk, you know, of tipping points after which you sort of lose control of the systems. Those were, you know, 
um, those are real. I don't want to say they're not real, but much was made of them in a way to sort of mobilize global, you know, action. And the unfortunate sort of flip side of that is people thinking, well, if those are already kicking in, you know, why, why bother? But there's never a point, I don't think. And I think if you spoke to climate scientists, I'm not a climate scientist, but I think if you spoke to climate scientists, they'd think, there's never a point where it's too late to avert something, right? So we have to um, operate on the hope that, you know, it is not too late to avert uh, some of the worst outcomes, you know, which I'm happy to talk about if you want, but, you know, let's, let's just take, you know, melting the Greenland ice sheet. We really don't know what the threshold is beyond which that becomes inevitable. Uh, we have to hope that we can stay sh- shy of that. Well, and as a university that sits at about 26 feet or so above sea level, I'm not sure exactly which <laughs> that would represent. I don't, you know, maybe it's the rare moment or maybe there are some people who are paid to actually think about what is it, what does it actually mean to live in any coastal environment? Because um, with projections like those Antarctic ones, some of these simply don't have a future in the places where, where we developed, right, our, our current civilization. Um, so on that rather doom, gloomy thought, let me, let, me, let me flip the question around a different way. And, and, and again, I'm going to draw on a question from the audience. So many scientists and many activists um, will project very optimistic scenarios about how well certain solutions could work. And the question is, if those are over-optimistic, can that backfire in our dialogue by, and I'll paraphrase now from what was posed, you know, either by making people think that it's all going to be doable and easy or that one solution is enough and therefore let's not worry about others. So have, do you feel like you've seen cases where you felt skeptical of the solutions and the language around the solutions, which is different than the language around the problem? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Abs- oh, absolutely. I mean, there's tremendous um, moment- momentum. Is that the right word? Sort of social momentum, I guess, behind this idea of, you know, nature-based solutions that, you know, if we, there was a, a paper printed, it was published, it was a very influential paper, you know, we're going to plant a trillion trees, and that's going to offset our emissions. And, you know, it was, it was wildly criticized in scientific circles. It's just really virtually impossible to plant enough trees to offset 40 billion tons of CO2 emissions every year. And um, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of talk about these sort of win-win solutions. You plant trees, you know, you get the benefit of having forests and you get, you draw down carbon. And that's true. That's true. But, um, you know, it's not as true as people might like to think. How's that? I mean, it's not that easy to, you know, plant a billion trees, a trillion trees, keep them alive while the climate's changing. (laughs) Um, But even so, the, the, the carbon impact of that, the drawing down of carbon impact is often, you know, wildly exaggerated. And I think that, so that's one example where I'm, I don't want to say I'm skeptical, but if you just, you know, really look hard at the numbers, and once again, I'm not the person to do it, but I have read those who have done it, uh, you find that that is, um, not nearly as likely to work, even if we were to do it, as we thought. And I'll just add another thing, where are you planting all these trees? You know, some of the places where the authors of that paper suggested 
was sort of open land that we could plant trees was tundra, you know, which you do not want to be planting trees in because you change the reflectivity of the place. And um, so, you know, there are just so many issues here that get that get glossed over in this sort of win-win talk. And I do find that worrisome. Yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, reducing emissions, and that's not one solution because there's many things necessary, is, is the one we can all agree, you know, so in terms of the impact on climate, no downside to reducing emissions. The challenge is, of course, the trade-offs and what it means economically and in terms of international development and well-being. But it is maybe the one solution on the technical side <laughs> that is us. Uh, yes. Yes. So changing our topic. Um, uh, in what ways do you, and again, from our audience, in what ways do you think that anti-racism and feminism and related areas of, of both study and dialogue in society can contribute to conservation issues and then also contributing to the climate change discussion? Well, I, I think really, um, you know, really crucial to this, to this conversation and uh, it's not given nearly enough <laughs> play in conversations about climate change in the U S where we can't even sort of get, you know, half of the country to sort of acknowledge that climate change is a problem but the issues of global equity, if we, if we were to take equity issues seriously, both internally to, you know, to the U.S. and externally towards the rest of the world, um, the obligations that we would have to you know, really dramatically rethink how we are doing things and really honestly to rethink how we are living would be very, very high. I think they'd be, you know, I think they're so high, to be honest, that it's very hard to get uh, to, to break through uh, on these issues because the, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like um, at the, at COP, there's talk of, of what's called loss and damages, which is, you know, countries that are on the front lines of climate change coming to those countries that have caused the most climate change, like the U.S. and saying, really, you owe us for that. Uh, for the losses we're, we are suffering and are going to suffer. And the, and the U.S. always says we are not touching that, you know. Um, but I think that issues of, you know, if you want to call them racial issues, if you want to call them, tra- you know, transnational issues, issues of, I guess, what I will just very broadly call global equity are are huge. And they, if, if you take them to heart, they mean, you know, that Americans who, I don't know what the latest figures are, where we're burning on, on average something like 14 tons of carbon a year, have to really, really radically uh, change the way we do business and, and probably can't do all the things that we all like to do. Uh, and that's a very, very tough, tough message. How's that? So, yes, it is. Um, so on a related note, and I'm going to also invite Gita to weigh in on this, um, the question is, in the natural resource and environmental arena, can science writing be value-free? And Gita, I would also be interested to think about this in health reporting and health writing, um, and, or, or, how would, or is even the way the question is framed, perhaps not the way you'd approach thinking about that question of where values play into journalism. I guess I'll let, um, I, I want to make sure Elizabeth has space, but I can definitely say, um, Values affect how you frame a story. <laughs> so I think um, one thing that the 
the vigorous debate in the journalism community in recent years has brought to light is that the concept of objectivity was flawed. It was based on, you know, sort of a white male perspective of um, the, it's, it's the perspective of the person sitting in that seat. That's not to say that everyone should not, that the world should now be a free for all in which we all just frame stories however we want to, but it's that we need to be thinking deeply about what the truth is, what facts we've gathered and be cognizant that we're framing a story based on our values. <laughs> so if we're, um, trying to look at climate change um, and what the solutions are. Suppose you were doing a story, such a story. Um, your, so the solutions that you think about would just, or the prism you view that question from would be where you stand. Um, and if you're sitting in the US, that would be very different from if you were sitting in Mumbai and you were looking at what the solutions to climate change are. So so I do think values um, influence how you see a story, how you frame a story, how you tell a story. But over to you, Elizabeth, for your thoughts on that. Well, I think this this sort of gets back to, you know, this this question. I mean, the discourse of science, and I know it's much, much criticized and there are, you know, critiques of scientific discourse, but I, I do think that the language of science represents in a an attempt to to bleed those values out of the discourse to just say okay this is what we did we ran this experiment anyone could run it right you could run it in mumbai you could run it in detroit you could run it you know in in beijing and you would get the same results because we have constrained the problem right and it is reproducible um and that is that makes a bad story. <laughs> that is not uh, what storytelling does. And storytelling brings a certain amount of heat to any issue that that is, you know, scientific writing just to use, you know, kind of cliched um, terms, I guess, is, is very cold, right? Trying to bleed out the, the human emotion. Um, and that is incredibly powerful. Science has been incredibly powerful. I mean, everything, you know, we are sitting here on Zoom. This is the power uh, of scientific inquiry. And uh, storytelling, which is much more ancient than science, brings some of that, that human emotion back. And whether that can be done value-free, I basically agree with Gita. I don't think that we can frame a story um, without implicitly bringing certain values with us. Now, you know, in American journalism, those values are unspoken often, although increasingly they're overt. And that's another interesting trend in American journalism, you know, that we are now in two camps and each camp reads its own, uh, <laughs> its own stories with their own frames. And we all understand what the implicit frames are uh, and we hate the other guys. Um, but I think it is, I, I agree that I think it's very hard to frame a story without bringing to the table um, certain values, even even ones that are hard to, to tease out. Well, and I think I think there's two really important overlaps with science here. One is that journalism and science have developed these very distinct methods of asserting 
tr- truth. And I say that in it's not, I hope not too positivist a way, but, and, and the amazing thing to me about journalism is that New York, New York times has to be able to say by tomorrow morning that there's, you know, some fact checking and truth behind this, whereas for scientists, it can take years to come to the point of being able to put something out in public with that kind of claim. So those, that is, I think a lot of room for a deeper discussion, but the value side, we have a very rigid set of rules about how to conduct an experiment, for example, how to analyze data. We do not have any rigid set of rules about what questions we should ask and which experiments we should do or which studies are in science and which ones are buried in obscure journals. So there's a lot of implicit values that I think scientists are often not reflecting on about why they're asking their questions, which questions are receiving more attention, um, and then which scientists are getting the most recognition for their work. And this comes back to the, the both the gendered and race history of, of uh, the scientific discipline. So the... I think this is where our continuing dialogue between journalism and science has, has a lot to unpack. There are more wonderful questions, and I'm going to offer an apology to those that we didn't get to. Um, before we wrap up, Elizabeth, any final words you want to offer to our Berkeley audience? Well, I want to say thank you for a lot of really, really thought-provoking questions, and I also just do want to reiterate for the um what I hope for a lot of young people out there, you know, uh, as I said, you, you live in an interesting times, so um, don't despair, but uh, get moving. Gita, final words? I would agree with Elizabeth. Um, get moving and use whatever your skills are whether they're scientific discovery or they're storytelling or they're organizing, use whatever those are to have an impact on this world. Elizabeth and Gita, this has been been a real pleasure, an enormous pleasure. And again, I'm really sorry we're not in person to continue this with what we would normally, we would have a reception after the Albright Lecture and uh, and hopefully we're all back to that soon enough. But also it makes us possible to bring in an audience from far and wide and uh, and reduce our carbon footprint, which we are all uh, increasingly cognizant of. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'm from Rouser College of Natural Resources. Thank you all for being with us here, we hope you all have stay safe and healthy and a have a enjoyable holiday season coming up. So thank you all very much. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. <laughs>